clergyman is walking down the street and he comes up on a group of a dozen boys. They're about 10 to 12 years old and they are gathered around um, this old stray dog and minister's concerned that these boys are abusing this animal so he steps into the circle of boys he says what are you doing with that dog and one of the boys says well this dog's just an old stray and we all want him but only one of us can take him home so we've decided whichever one of us can tell the biggest lie gets to keep the dog <laughs> minister's taken aback he he says, you boys shouldn't have a contest telling lies. He said, don't you boys know it's a sin to lie? He launches into about a 10-minute sermon about lying. The clergyman ends his speech with, when I was your age, I never told a lie. And there's a dead silence about a minute. And just as the minister's beginning, I think he got through to them. The smallest boy gives a, a deep sigh and said, all right, give him the dog. <laughs> and it... And it seems like uh, those kids are statistically right. I don't know if you can make this out or not, but studies show, and those are different age patterns, that we begin to learn uh, to lie as early as age two, and it peaks, as a shocker, during the teenage years, <laughs> but it continues all the way throughout our life so that those of us who are grandparents statistically still half of us lie one to five times a day your grandparents are lying to you one to five times a day this is shocking news um, and if you look at, at the studies continue and they show why we lie and those top banners there explain the largest ones personal transgressions to cover up personal transgressions um, for economic advantage or some kind of other personal advantage. That's about, that's about um, half of all lies fall into those reasons. And so with those kind of statistics, I guess I shouldn't be surprised that the confirmation hearing for the nominee of the Supreme Court has devolved into this question, who's lying, right? Because somebody is lying. Now, you can relax. I don't know who, um, but I bet Maureen O'Sullivan would if she was still alive. She passed away recently. She was a deception expert. I actually had, I think, a PhD in deception. Um, but so she, she, her studies, she was a, she was a professor, she, she said that though most people believe that they can easily detect when someone is lying, the average person is wrong 50% of the time. She says, but there are some people who are unusually adept at sniffing out a lie. O'Sullivan found a special group who detect lies nearly 90% of the time. Children, they're called parents. Just <laughs> keep, keep that in mind. Um, so people with disability make up about a quarter of 1% of the population. Um, she screened 20,000 people for this ability, and 50 
of these, um, of these experts, ultimate experts were identified. She says, we call them truth wizards. Truth wizards. Lord knows Congress could use a truth wizard or two these days as they try to sort all this out. But there's a sense in which this is the role that the Apostle John played in the first century church. Um, he was a bit of a truth wizard. And he said things like this in the letter he wrote, First John. He said, who's the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. And John spotted him every time. He had, he had kind of a three-part test. You remember this from 1 John that he was encouraging people to use on these teachers. Um, there was the truth test. Do they confess Jesus? There's the obedience test. Do they follow Jesus? And lastly, there was the, the love test. Do they love Jesus' people? That is the church. And all of this we saw in 1 John. Today we're going to look at 2 John. Um, and it all kind of recurs there in, in short form. Uh, 2 John is one of the shortest books in the New Testament. It loses out barely to 3 John uh, that we'll study next week. And some have said that if 1 John is a letter, 2 John is a postcard. Um, it's barely half a page in your Bible. Um, just 13 short verses. So if you would, let's look at it together. You can open your Bibles to 2 John. We're going to cover the entire book today, all 13 verses. So let me pray for us while, while we look there. Father, have mercy on us. This morning I ask that through the teaching of your word, by your spirit, you would safeguard our church. Protect us from those who would deceive us. Those who have gone out from among us and no longer confess Jesus or follow him or love his people. Lord, have mercy on us this morning. Let your word have its full and beautiful effect on your people, we pray. Amen. So, 2 John starts this way. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us, and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. So the Apostle John is likely the one behind the authorship here who calls himself the elder. Uh, could, could be a reference to age, could be a reference to his, his standing in the church as, a, as an authoritative leader. John is most likely, the Apostle John is most likely that guy. He was the writer of 1 John. He was the writer of the Gospel of John. He'll be the writer next week of 3 John, unless Carson has some unique insight on that. And then um, Revelation, the book of Revelation, also recorded by the same author. He was one of the twelve apostles of Jesus, and he is writing to an elect lady, and a nameless elect lady and her children. And there's a couple different ways to think about it. They don't radically shape the way we understand the book, but they're different ways. The first way is um, that it's really a reference, kind of almost like a metaphor for a, a, a church, 
the elect lady and her children is a church, uh, it, probably a small congregation, maybe a house church, as you think about the way the letter unfolds. And the ID may be veiled here because that church is under persecution. And so in verse 13, when he closes this, he says, the children of your elect sister greet you. That, uh, with this understanding, would mean this is, this is a letter from one house church to another house church, or greetings, rather, greetings from one house church to another. Now, the other way to understand it is that it's a, it is a veiled reference to an actual lady and her children, her actual children. These could be uh, physical children that are part of her, her actual family, or it could be her spiritual children that she has led to faith in, in Jesus. Um, in this case, she would possibly have been one of the leaders in this house church, a lady whose ministry, as, we see, as we'll see, probably involved the exercising of hospitality um, to itinerant teachers especially. It was a vital ministry both for those traveling missionaries and for the church. Verse 13 then, where it says the children of your elect sister greet you, that would be her actual sister and her kids who part of another fellowship where John is, is writing from. And again, the reference is nameless, perhaps due to persecution. So now I'm, uh, I'm inclined towards this latter view, that he's writing a lady and her kids. I love that idea. It's a minority view, it's like me and one other guy, I think that way. So take it for what it's worth. But um, at least these days, it was more popular a while back. But um, I, I'm, I'm inclined to think that way. I don't see any real reason not to take it as a lady and her kids, just like it says. Um, plus both the double imagery of the lady and her children and then the hospitality emphasis of the letter, I think it fits an individual reading really well. It's more like Third John in that way, which is written to a named individual. This one could be written to an unnamed lady who was a, a leader in the church. But either way, this postcard comes to us as counsel for our church family. It has important things to say to us. So this lady, it says, John loves in truth, okay? Um, he closes his letter with another beautiful expression of his care for her down in verse 12. He says, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. And uh, this is someone John deeply cares for, deeply cares about. And um, not just John, but verse one there says, not only I love you in the truth, but also all who know the truth love you. Um, so she is loved by all, presumably all who know her and all who know the truth. Um, and this could well be a veiled reference to her ministry of hospitality to so many traveling believers. Um, the truth here is likely a reference to the truth that centers around who Jesus is and what he has done and what he has taught it's the truth about Jesus and the truth that comes to us from Jesus. And this shared faith in the truth about Jesus lives in them, John says, and it will be with us forever. Okay. And this echoes the language that he closed out the book of 1 John with. You maybe remember this verse at the very end. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So 
Back in verse 3, John says, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. And he assures them that grace and mercy and peace from none less than God the Father and his Son will be theirs as they abide in truth and love. So if you like the idea of a life that's marked by grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and his Son, John says you're going to find that if you will walk in truth and love. That will be your life. It's like a promise he's extending here. And that's really what the rest of this little postcard's about. It's about walking in truth and in love. And in that sense, it's a little mini version, a personal version of 1 John. Okay? 1 John, it seems, is a letter, obviously, much greater in length, much greater detail. Um, the same themes, though, and it was likely circulated amongst a number of churches. But second and third John are much more brief and personal and could be written to individuals, third John for sure. Verse 4, John says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And so he's encountered some of her children, perhaps at this other church, in a nearby community, could be her actual children, could be some that she've led to faith, that language is used that way a lot of times. And he is ecstatic when he sees their faith. Uh, I mean, we're talking Creswellian joy here, all right? He is ecstatic that her children are walking faithfully. Um, so, verse 5 and 6, Now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning. And you hear echoes of 1 John here, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments, and this is the commandment, just as you've heard it from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. And so he's calling our nameless lady here to walk in love. Walk in love. And probably here, this is more protection than correction. It's reminding her of the essential nature of love for those who follow Jesus. Okay? That we love one another, that's what marks us as his. Okay? It's the mark of a follower of Jesus. And there were those who lived differently, who failed the test of love. And John is in shepherding mode here as he reminds her that this is vital to our faith. Love one another, John says, in obedience to the commands of Jesus. And he's likely thinking of, of things like this. Jesus says in John 13, new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I've loved you. You also are to love one another. Page later, John 15, this is my commandment, Jesus says, that you love one another as I have loved you. These things I command you, just a couple verses later, so that you will love one another. It's a command. Okay? John uses that language repeatedly in our passage. Four times in three verses, he talks about this command. Love one another. It's, it's a command. And it echoes the language of John's three tests from 1 John. Okay? The language of truth, and obedience, and love. So we're commanded by God to love one another. It's the thing that matters most. 
It's the thing that matters most. Okay? It's the most important thing in your life. Jesus, remember the words of Jesus. Someone said to him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. It's the most important thing, Jesus says. Paul laments a life without love. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So if you're going to give yourself to something in this life, this is it, okay? This is the most important thing you can do. Get better at loving. It matters more than your bank account. It matters more than a college degree. It matters more than a PhD. So if you're at Southeastern and you think the most important thing you're doing is getting a degree in theology, you're wrong. Okay? It's not about that. Not primarily. You are learning to love as a follower of Jesus. And if you miss that, then you've missed everything. It matters more than what kind of shape you're in. It matters more than what percent body fat you have. It matters more than if your kids are homeschooled or public schooled. It matters more than what neighborhood you live in or whether your team won yesterday. Jesus says it's the most important thing in the world. Are you getting better at loving? If not, this should be of the highest concern to you. That you're not better at loving your family or your neighbors or the people in this room or God himself than you were last year. Paul says, so now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So there's this author, Kara Powell, she writes us to imagine what the end of our life is like. We're welcomed into the presence of Jesus, who has saved you by his grace. And in the midst of all the wonderful things we'll experience, she, she imagines, she asks us to imagine too, just for the sake of this illustration, that we're ushered into our own personal media room. You won't find it in Revelation, but play along with me here. As you enter your personal media room, you're told that you get to sit on a cozy couch with comfortable pillows, eating as much popcorn and candy as you want without the calories, of course. That you're going to watch a video of your life. The video is a compilation of all the moments in your life when you were fully present. All the moments when you weren't numbed out or distracted by media, technology, TV, the internet, cell phones. All the moments when you were totally engaged with others or fully attentive to God. She says, now imagine this video playing in your personal media room and ask yourself these questions. 
How long is my video? How many scenes will depict me relishing life to the fullest, not numb or distracted, fully enjoying and loving the people around me? She says, you think about your life's video, how many scenes will show you completely ready to hear what Jesus is trying to say to you? How long is your video of being present in love? Andy Crouch tells a story. He says, a few years back, I, I had the great gift of being invited into the bedroom of my friend, David Sachs, born in 1968, just like me, he says, but brought to the end of his life by cancer that, by the time it was discovered, had erupted throughout his body. After a glorious and grace-filled year of life made possible my medical treatment, David's illness outran the drugs, and in his last days, he lay on his bed, and his body was now unbearably thin and weak, and David was an, an internationally celebrated photographer, but he would never make another image. He had sent me countless text messages over the years, but now he was beyond text messaging. He created a Facebook group where he and his wife, Angie, chronicled the story of his cancer di diagnosis, treatment, and all the ups and downs that followed, but he would never again update it. But he was still there, still with us, still able, just barely, to hear us praying and singing, able in moments of lucidity to open his eyes, take in the small group of family and friends gathered around his bed, and to know that he was not alone. His brother brought a guitar and we sang several nights in a row Matt Redman's song, 10,000 10, Reasons. He says the technology was over. The easy everywhere dream had ended. Now we could only be here. We could only be here in our vulnerable bodies, present to the immensely hard reality of a friend, father, son, and husband dying. He says over the bed was a framed calligraphied rendering of David and Angie's wedding vows. He said, it was one of the hardest places I've ever been. He says, it was one of the most holy places I've ever been. He says, it was one of the best places I've ever been. And he says, we are meant to build this kind of life together. The kind of life that, at the end, is completely dependent on one another. The kind of life that ultimately transcends and does not need the easy solutions of technology because it is caught up in something more true and more lasting than anything our technological world can invent. We are meant to die in one another's arms, surrounded by prayer and song, knowing beyond knowing that we are loved. He says, we are meant for so much more than technology can ever give us, above all, for the wisdom and courage that it will never give us. We are meant to spur one another along on a better way to a better life, the life that really is life. He says, why not begin living that life together now? And John would say, that's a life of love. So let's do this. Let's give ourselves to what Jesus says is the greatest, most important thing in the world. Let's have people over to lunch after church. Let's, let's go visit folks in the hospital. Let's open up our homes and our lives and our wallets as needed 
And let's, let's get better at loving each other. So I'm mindful of, of a young couple. Um, his mom has a history of drug abuse. But uh, she moved up to their city through the ministry of their little local church and this loving family. She came to Jesus and she was clean, free for a season from what, uh, what had ensnared her so deeply. But then they found out that she had been secretly using again. And, uh, and they had been trusting her with their kids. So what do you do with that? Well, obviously the babysitting privileges are revoked, right? But, but their great concern was that she wouldn't run. That she wouldn't hide from their love. That mattered more than safety and security and not being around that kind of stuff. And so they continue to pursue her and continue to love her and continue to welcome her in their home. So they can love her and help her be free from the sins that so desire to enslave her. So let's do this, right? Let's be the church where everybody gets loved. Everybody gets loved. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield writes beautifully about opening up our homes to express this. She says, um, and she's writing, particularly she's thinking about doing it on this day, on the Lord's Day. She says, we forget the point of hospitality in the home. It's fellowship, not entertainment. She says, don't let pride stop you from opening your home. Ignore the cat hair on the couch or in the mac and cheese. It likely won't kill anyone as decisively as loneliness, she says. Add as much water to the pot to stretch the soup. If you run out of food, make pancakes. Put the kids in charge of making that meal. See how much fun that is. She says, and know that someone is spared from another humiliating fall into internet pornography because he is instead walking with you and your kids and dogs as you share the Lord's Day. One model of how the Lord gives you daily grace and a way of escape. Know that someone is spared the fear and darkness of depression because she is needed at your house, always on the Lord's day, the day she is never alone, but instead safely in community where her place at the table is needed and necessary and relied upon. Know that someone is drawn into Christ's love because the Bible reading and the psalm singing that come at the close of the meal include everyone. The doors here open wide. So let's do this, okay? Let's do this thing. And can I, can I encourage you to put our singles on your radar? They fall through the gaps. They go home alone a lot. Um, and that shouldn't happen. That shouldn't happen. And you know if you're single, you don't get a pass on this, right? You live somewhere. You eat food. 
have somebody over where you live and eat your food. Okay? <laughs> Hospitality is so important in all this. First Peter 4. Above all, Peter says it too, it's the most important thing. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins, showing hospitality to one another without grumbling. See, hospitality is one of the primary colors of love. It's just a shape it takes. This is what, why it's so surprising that in just a couple of verses, John is going to put a fence around our hospitality and tell us to put out this mat that says, not welcome. We're going to see it in just a couple verses. Or if you want to go all Lords of the Rings-ish, you could do it this way. You shall not pass. And this is why. Look at the next verse with me. Look at verse 7. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who did not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. These are more strong words from the apostle of love. It's John's reputation, right? He says, this is the mark of a deceiver, even of the antichrist. They don't confess the coming of Jesus as the Christ in the flesh. This is straight out of 1 John, right? Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And it's a warning. John is sounding a warning to this lady. They're out there. It's like he's saying, they might be headed your way. John Stott, in his writings on this passage, say that as the apostles were sent forth into the world to preach the truth, so these false teachers had gone forth to teach lies as emissaries of the devil, the father of lies. And so, think about this scenario. The false teachers have left the fellowship where John is, and they've gone out into the world to spread their lies about Jesus, they could be very well headed towards this lady in her home, her family, her church. And the gathering, maybe that takes place at her home. And so he writes in verse 8, watch yourselves. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Stay in the truth, he says. Stay in love and beware of those who teach false ideas about Jesus. Um, Consider the story of of this guy, uh, this fellow. His name is Mark Landis. And he is an art forger. Um, For nearly 30 years, he's made headlines for duping dozens and dozens of museums into accepting fakes into their collection. Landis admits he's always had a mischievous streak, and when contacting museums, he would often use aliases, and sometimes he would dress like a Jesuit priest. 
And with his odd demeanor and nearly encyclopedic knowledge of art history, Landis could easily come across as an eccentric art collector. But his skills with a pencil and paintbrush are undeniable. Often using a magnifying glass, Landis studies a print of an original work and with meticulous attention to detail copies exactly what he sees. Religious icons, impressionist or modern works. His recreations in the style of old masters are astonishing and so are his tools. They include magic markers and pens and Walmart frames. Uh, not materials that proper forgers might use. But more than 60 museums in 20 states could not tell the difference between Landis copies and original works. Not only were his fakes convincing, but he also knew exactly what to say when he met with museums. As one museum director explains, Landis would imply that he had more paintings he might donate and possible endowments from the family's estate. He said the museum director admits he knew where, right where to hit us, our soft spot. Art and money. And so John is telling us something sobering. People don't just lie about art or sexual abuse. There are people who lie about Jesus. They are deceivers. They are the Antichrist. And they exist in our day. Consider these, these quotes from the Unity School of Christianity, Charles Fillmore. Most of our religious beliefs are based on the erroneous idea that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. The Way International, Victor Paul Weirwill. Trinitarian dogma placing Jesus Christ on God's level degrades God and leaves man unredeemed. Jehovah's Witnesses, Charles Taze Russell. The incarnation is scripturally erroneous. If he, Christ, had been an incarnate being, he could never have redeemed mankind. John is concerned that this lady is being exposed to these teachers, these false teachers, and the possibility that she might forfeit her reward for their work in the gospel. And, uh, and I'm concerned too. Okay. Concerned that this could happen to you. You could go poking around somewhere, run across some convincing website and buy into something that's simply not true about who our Lord and Savior, King Jesus, really is. He's concerned that she might forfeit her reward. It might be that this reward is just losing the pleasure of God on her life, which would surely be enough, but he may, in fact, have something even more severe in mind, as we'll see in this next verse, verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both a father and the son. So apparently these, these teachers had, had in, maybe even in their own words, gone beyond the apostles. They had a more advanced teaching to bring about who Jesus was. Um, thinking that they were more advanced than John and, and the writers of the New Testament. As one, as one scholar puts it, they had advanced so far that they even left God behind them. So beware of advanced approaches to spirituality that marginalize Jesus and maximize some other teaching or some other technique or some other approach he is warning the lady, and he's warning us. 
But if we fall in with these false teachers who deny that Jesus came in the flesh as the Christ, the only Son of God, to bear the sins of the world, she will lose her reward. She could lose God. And so could we. Much as the false teachers did is what he has in mind. First John chapter 2, you remember this. Everyone who goes on ahead, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. John is clear. Christ and his teaching are central, even essential, to know God. So this little, this little phrase is a good summary of what John says. Know Jesus, know God. Know Jesus, know God. Okay. It's that that exclusive. And so he says in verse 10, to this lady and to her family, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, teaching of Jesus, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So having established how important it is to be loving, John now puts a fence around it. Okay? This has got to create some kind of dilemma so we're supposed to love our enemies, but not show love to these teachers? And in a word, I suppose you could say yes, at least with regards to hospitality, hospitality in the church. Those who profess Christ, but deny him by their actions and teachings, are treated much more harshly than those who are simply outside of the faith. So it's possible here that this elect lady and her children, who were likely known for their hospitality to Christian teachers and missionaries, they could very well be about to encounter these false teachers who've gone out from John's fellowship. Not just gone out in terms of location, but also in terms of doctrine and practice. And if she were to open her home to them, perhaps even the place where the church gathered, That could have opened the door for their teaching or give some kind of tacit endorsement to their teaching about Jesus. Professor Karen Job says that um, extending hospitality in Greco-Roman culture gave one's guests a standing in the community equal to one's own standing. Therefore, to provide shelter and food for travelers was not simply a hospitable act. It had social ramifications beyond the immediate household involved. Ignatius lived during the first century, lived during the time of John when he's writing this. And this is what he says. He really reflects it well. He says, but I am guarding you in advance against wild beasts in human form. People whom you must not only not welcome, but if possible, not even meet. Nevertheless, do pray for them that somehow they might repent, difficult though it may be, because Jesus Christ, our true life, has power over this. That's a beautiful, a beautiful expression of what, what John is saying here. One, one commentator says Christianity has its limits, or rather, um, charity has its limits. It must not be shown to one man in such a way as to do grievous harm to others. So what does this mean for us? And maybe what doesn't it mean? And I gleaned some things from Pastor John Stott in his work that's helpful. He says, perhaps... What we have here, because of the likelihood that this either refers to a church 
or refers to a lady perhaps who's hosting the church or helping lead the church. That it's not private hospitality which John is forbidding so much as an official welcome into the congregation with the opportunity this would afford to the false teacher to propagate his errors. So he goes on to say that he's also referring here to teachers of false doctrine about the incarnation and not to every false teacher. So it's about doctrine about Jesus that really matters at the core of things. He says this verse gives us no warrant to refuse fellowship to those, even teachers, who do not agree with our interpretation of apostolic doctrine in every particular. So if they baptize differently or if they think differently about speaking in tongues or some other issue. That's not the issues that, the level of issues that John is talking about here. F.F. Okay. Bruce helps even more. He says, this does not mean, for instance, that say one of Jehovah's Witnesses should be invited into the house or should not be invited into the house for a cup of tea in order to be shown the way of God more perfectly in the sitting room than would be convenient on the doorstep. So it doesn't mean that you can't have someone into your home to love them in the name of Jesus. But again, we're likely talking here about some official capacity that endorses. So would you invite them into your small group to teach? No, you would not. No, you, no, you would not. A while back, I showed a video of a church that invited uh, Louis Farrakhan to preach at their church. No. Trust me, not, not happening here. The elders are not going to extend that kind of invitation. That's what John has in mind. People who have denied the core doctrines of who Jesus is should not be given a voice anywhere, any way in the life of the church. We must guard truth for the sake of love, not letting false teachers prey upon the flock like wolves. So in this little kind of postcard of 2 John, the elder is pressing us with two very familiar questions for those of us who've been studying 1 John. First one is this. What does it mean for you to love one another? To love the church. What does that mean? So if this is the deal, if this, is, if this Jesus says is the most important thing to give your life to, the love of God and love of neighbor, what must that look like for you and for your family? Okay, this is for you. What must it look like for you? His second question, or the second question he's pressing is, is what does it mean for us to watch ourselves? To keep guard. And you need to, because as we've seen, there are people out there who are what John calls deceivers and liars, people who are anti-Christ. So, on the negative side, don't invite errant teaching into your home through the internet. Okay. Don't invite heretics into your home or your small group by means of wicked teaching dressed to impress on your computer. Don't exercise internet hospitality to people who are tweaking in ways that are incompatible with Scripture and the teaching of the apostles about Jesus. Don't do that. doesn't matter how cool their website is. Don't do it. Um, beware of getting your doctrines and beliefs from untested Internet sources. 
If you don't know if you're reading from credible, reliable folk, ask one of our elders. A bunch of them have like PhDs and stuff. They can help you find reliable teachers on the internet where you'll learn truth and not error about who Jesus is. So more positively, though, know truth about Jesus. Know who he is. You ought to be an expert in who Jesus is. You follow him, right? You give your life to him? Kind of ought to know who he is, what he asks of you. You ought to be an expert. You ought to be like this walking Christology expert. So read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, over and over and over. So you know Jesus, okay? And and I know this is going to be hard for some of you to sort out, read some doctrine, okay? And the creeds are a great place to start, both ancient and modern, um, because they're really short, okay? It's a great place to learn theology. They're really short. You have to read like a 1,000 pages, like fit on a page. And you will begin to hear the kind of language that is true about Jesus. And then when some Jehovah's Witness shows up at your door and they say that Jesus is a created being, you're going to go, that doesn't sound right. This doesn't sound right. John 1 is ringing in your ears. And the Nicene Creed is ringing in your ears. Um, so I'll post some of these creeds. Really, they're like a page or two. I'll post them this week on our leader blog, which you can sign up for at our webpage, northwake.com. Okay? So go there, sign up, and everything there is free. Um, but I'll post some this week. You can think about them. They'll enrich your understanding of Jesus. They'll raise questions that you'll need to get answers to. But you'll learn the language of truth about who Jesus is beautifully. Here's a good example. Let's, let's close with this. We confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, He became truly man, two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us, crucified dead and buried. He rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, he kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and gave us his righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and king. Building his church, interceding for us, and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise his holy name forever. Amen. 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 Father, come now and protect us by your truth. We are like sheep. We're easily led astray. Lord, have mercy on us. I pray that 
from this family gathered in this room, not one. Not the youngest child. Not the loneliest person would fall prey to any deceit about who Jesus is and the depth of his love for them as the Son of God, the Christ, who came to die for the sins of the world in flesh, very God and very man. So Lord, have that mercy on us. And as we know him more, oh Lord, deepen our love for your Son that we might, as he taught us, love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then, of course, our neighbors, even as ourselves. Have mercy on us, Lord. Mark us deep with these things. May they be our safekeeping. And this we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.